I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today we are joined by Sean Martin of the PGA Tour. Sean is on the grounds of the PGA Championship, but the main focus of this podcast is going to be on the upcoming USAM and the Walker Cup team that will be selected right after the USAM. So we're going to diverge and go into a little bit of amateur golf here on the pod, but Spartan, what's uh, what's happening out in uh, Quail Hollow? Uh, it's raining. It doesn't have to be like any more of Rory's championship. Uh, it's raining right now. It's supposed to rain most of the day. Uh, so it's going to be long. It's going to be soft. And I mean, if Rory wasn't already the favorite, I think the odds are, are just continuing to move in his favor. Yeah, it, it seems like everything's kind of aligning for Rory. Uh, the way he played last week, the way he hit the ball and then combine that with a very soft golf course that he's dominated at. It, it seems like a tailor-made place for him to break out of his major slump. I think so. I think, I mean, it, you hate to say it because winning is so hard and over 72 holes, there's so many little things that can go your way or go against you. And it's just, I think winning sometimes is overrated as a way to rate players. But I think if Rory leaves here with anything but a win, I feel like you'd have to be uh, disappointed. So, I, you know, it's Rory and Spieth this week, and I think uh, I mean, that's really all the focus of the storyline heading in. And, of course, the shorts. Uh, all the talk so far, it's only Tuesday, Tuesday morning, but shorts, for some reason, have been all the rage and, and all the talk. And I, I don't know. I just don't quite get it. I think, guys, I like pants. I'm not a huge – I don't think anyone doesn't play golf because pros wear pants. Uh, there's some guys like Rory and Ricky look good in shorts, but at the same time, I don't, I don't know. I just think this whole shorts thing has gotten a lot of control. You know, it, it always amazes me how golf has these little things that get blown completely out of proportion. I feel like it, it's unlike any other sport where the smallest little things get, like, the most polarizing views. And shorts this week seems to be the thing. Like, at at, uh, at uh, Aaron Hills, it was the overspray and the fescue. And here we have the shorts that everybody's freaking out about. Like, what's the big deal? It's 92 degrees. And humid. I think people just like, you know, golf. Golf is it's fairly repetitive, uh, so people like something new. I always say novelty is a heck of a drug, and so I think, you know, we've been wearing pants forever, so I get it. Shorts are new, uh, but I don't think you know it's, it's almost as this is viewed as like some grow the game initiative. And, and I work for the pants lobby. We're all pants, so I get. I'm wearing pants right now, even though the players aren't. But I don't think anyone is going to start playing golf because the guys wear shorts. And on the other side, I don't think anyone doesn't play golf because the pros wear pants. So I don't, I don't know. I, it's good the guys are wearing shorts. I'm kind of glad they go back to pants once the tournament starts. Uh, you know, there's just some guys you don't want to see in shorts, frankly, and I think they would even admit it. And so I don't know. I, I think, and if anything, I think it makes golf look bad because we're so obsessed with shorts. I think people are like, look, who cares? Just do one or the other and move on with it. Yeah. 
I I just hope that the um, maybe we could end the epidemic of you see these kids in these amateur tournaments and it's ninety five degrees and they're wearing pants and you're like why why are you wearing pants at a thirty six hole USAM qualifier when it's ninety degrees and you have to walk thirty six holes like not one professional would be wearing pants in that situation. Well, I think it was Justin Thomas and I think some other guys. I'm pretty sure Justin, if you look at all of his old junior golf photos, he's wearing pants because his dad told him that PGA Tour players wear pants, and so he wanted to start preparing for the PGA Tour as soon as possible. Um, but it's like if we switch to shorts, all those hot summer days in Kentucky when he was wearing pants, those are all out the door, and those were for nothing, I guess. But, I mean, I, I understand. I kind of appreciate it that a guy, Brian's wearing pants, uh, to emulate tour pros, though I do think at times take advantage of the rules, use them in your favor, and wear some shorts. But uh, I don't know. I like that Justin Thomas had the foresight when he was seven years old to like, hey, tour pros wear pants. I'm going to play on tour. I'm going to wear pants when I'm seven years old. Hey, I, I'm out on I'm out on pants and AM events. I, uh, Western AM requires the pants, which I think is kind of kind of stupid, but the. Uh, the the voluntary pants wearing like I saw this one guy at my USAM qualifier who legitimately like he you could tell he was trying to look like Dustin Johnson like decked out in full Dustin Johnson gear and he shot like 92 and you're like why why don't you worry more about your golf game and less about looking like Dustin Johnson yeah, the more you bring it in a fashion sense, the more pressure you're putting on yourself. I'd rather kind of look bad and play good than look good and play bad. The Western AM wearing pants, that's amazing to me. That's three straight 36 whole days uh, in Chicago in July or August mm-hmm. wearing pants. And so that is a tr- that is a true endurance test. Yeah, and they they allow shorts now in the practice round, which is, you know, they've they've open that up to shorts, but they still require the championship to be in pants. So, it's a, I mean, I think it's something that they are moving towards, but they haven't gotten all the way there yet. Maybe that's why the PGA allowed shorts. They saw the Western AM was doing it, and so they thought, you know what, let's get on board too. Who, who would think that the Western Golf Association is a trendsetter? <laughs> uh, I just love the fact, I'm going, you know, going to the BMW here soon, I love the fact that the Western Golf Association is called that because back when it was formed so long ago, that was the West. Like, the Western Golf Association goes back so far that Chicago was the Western United States. It's, I mean, with this whole PGA move, it's kind of interesting because with it moving to May, it it shines a light on all of the kind of West Coast and Southern courses, which for the most part were developed way after those of, like, the Midwest. So, like, Chicago, the Northeast, Philly... Um, New York and Boston, and you're going to have a lot of newer golf courses that don't have necessarily the championship history of the courses in those, you know, great golf cities, which, you know, and that's a a point of the Western Golf Association being the west side of of golf. Yeah, I think we were talking, I was talking this morning about some places, and I mean, there's so many things logistically and even length-wise that reasons you can't do it but it'd be awesome if the the pga just went off the rails and just take all of these new you know link style courses like go to pacific dunes which i know you can't because then you get tipped out at 600 yards uh but you know go to go to like bandon and go to um 
I'm losing sight, but you know, go to Sand Valley, which might be hard in Wisconsin today, but go to those kinds of courses. Just be known as the place where, you know, all the new, just kind of eccentric uh, courses, we're going to play at those and we're going to get on some really crazy layouts. I think that would be a, a cool identity for, uh, for the PGA. Yeah, you could do Trinity Forest down in, uh, in te- Texas. Blue Jack would be an interesting one. Yeah. Uh, I think Blue Jack could be a really good host. I, I really liked it when I played there um, in the fall. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see Shawl Creek get another one. Um, you know, they set record attendance numbers when they had it there in the uh, 90s. And uh, they just yeah. finished up a, a renovation there. So I would be very, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if all, at all if we saw one going back to Alabama. Um but stream song maybe stream song could be cool it it would be it'd probably be getting into the very hot stage there and that place is you know because yeah. it's a phosphate farm it's like 10 degrees warmer right um, i do think blue jack would be awesome blue jack's out there so you have so much land available uh i love blue jack i played there once i'm a big blue jack fan just the whole vibe too but that's a whole different podcast yeah i i like blue jack for um i just think it, it you know, I, I found it to be very challenging, like subtly challenging. I know the whole identity is playability, but what Tiger did with lies and and the way the greens, the greens are really receptive for like the the low running shot that, you know, a, a higher handicap and like a senior or junior or lady would play. But they make it, they, they're really tough shots for like the person that's flying the ball in there. Yeah, I, I think it's a great example of just, that whole, you know, challenging for the good player, playable for the, the not as good player. It's obviously very wide, and um, I think that you're totally spot on. And there's so many false fronts and just fall offs that uh, you have to think and you have to think about your misses. And, and you, you're, I mean, it is. It's your course. It's width and angles. Uh, you got to come in from the right angles to have a chance, but you have the width that it's uh, playable for for everyone. So, you know, another place that's about width and angles that could be a PGA site is this year's USAM site, Riviera. Um, So talking about Riviera on the tour, you see typically older winners come from Riv. I think in the last 12 years, the youngest winner was Charles Howell at age 28. Um, So we see this older kind of winner, and it's, it's less about power you know, power obviously helps, but it's more about hitting it to the pr- proper side of fairways to open up angles to the pins that are really well protected. What do you, do you, do you see maybe experience? So your older college players having an advantage and then, you know, possibly mid amps having an advantage at Riv. I can see that. I'm curious. Uh, unfortunately in the mid amp front, I saw Stuart Haggis had tweet his clubs got stolen. Cause that doesn't help things though. I'm sure he's, going full force and getting a, a new set and getting dialed in. But Riv's interesting because I think you do get the older winners. You've pointed that fat out to me before, and I didn't realize it until you did. But there is, uh, depending on how the Kikuya is, there is width in the alleyways, I feel like. But if the Kikuya is unplayable, uh, obviously then the fairways can be narrow. But I think for the, the Genesis Open, they've had it where the Kikuya is a little more playable. And so there's alleyways you have a lot of playable area then if the Kikuya is down. and um, It's brutal when the Kikuya is up. I think, you know, the NCAA championship, when Thomas Peters won, I think he was four under for three rounds, and I think there were like three guys under par. 
Um, so we can definitely play a lot harder than maybe we see it sometimes in February when it's wet. But, you know, you've seen Dustin and Bubba play so well there that I think that you can still bomb it around there depending on how the setup is and, and definitely length helps. I think uh, older college players, I can definitely see an advantage. But I don't know. There's just so many guys that just kill it. You can almost play thoughtless golf nowadays. And, you know, hopefully Riviera does force you to think your way around a little bit more than, than other places have. I haven't lived in Southern California in a while, but I think that it can play a little firmer and faster uh, in August. So that will definitely help experience and, and bring that to the forefront because Riviera is designed to obviously play firmer and fast and it's so tricky. So if they've had good weather, with haven't the forecast, I think, I think you're spot on there. Yeah. I, it's, it's interesting. I spent the week at, at, the Western Am last week and something that you'd brought up about this like thoughtless golf is, I mean, this young revolution that we are seeing on tour after watching these kids play around Skokie, I think it's, you're only going to see a younger and younger tour for the time being until something happens with technology. I mean, these kids just have no fear. They've never hit a shot that, that really curves offline. Um, and the ball just goes so straight now that it's just, you know, they, if there's no wind and it, it's, these kids are just going to tear up any golf course. It, 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 to me, it, I just found it absolutely, they, these kids are so good at golf now. It's, and I think it, we're just going to see a tour that gets younger and younger, and we might see an amateur win a tour event in the next five years. I could, I could totally see that. And I think, you know, when I, I'm 34, and I remember when the Great Big Bertha came out, and that was obviously revolutionary and groundbreaking. And titanium drivers were people were switching to titanium drivers. It was a new thing, uh, and now you've got guys who've grown up obviously with the 460 cc heads. And I think too, really, with how far the ball goes and how far people hit it, you really only need to master, I'd say, two skill sets, maybe three. You have to become a great driver of the golf ball, and then all you're gonna have left in from there is wedge. So become a great driver and a great wedge player. Uh, you know, you might need your mid irons for second shots on par fives and for some par threes, but really it's driving and wedging now. Um, and so I think it allows you to really focus on those two areas, get really good at those and, you know, maybe kind of take some other parts of the game out of it, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, it's definitely changing. I mean, I, I played our state am a couple of weeks ago and I don't think I hit more than like a, I hit a five iron on a par three, but that was, that's the longest iron I hit all week. Um, and it, it, it's just, it's crazy. It's like, you know, I'm, I, I seem to gain 20 yards. I, I, I think I gained 10 yards of distance this year. And it's like, you watch these kids, you, you got Cameron champ out there hitting 370 yard drives with regularity. And he's, he'd be the longest player on the PGA tour right now. And he's a 21 year old kid. Yeah. And he is, I mean, he's an, I think that sometimes people attribute too much of it to athleticism, but I think that also many people overlook it too. I mean, he is an athletic build, athletic kid, you know, like he now is a very athletic kid, very sprinty, you can just see how he moves. Same with Dustin, obviously, but uh, it's interesting too with Trackman, I think, uh, I think this all goes back to the ball, but with Trackman, people make swing changes now based on getting the best Trackman numbers. So guys are, whereas before you kind of grew up, I don't know, when I grew up, you tailored your swing basically like hitting the ball straight. You wanted to hit it far enough, obviously, but you were more worried about keeping it in play. Now it's almost like guys tailor their swing to just getting the best tracking numbers and hitting it the farthest. And I think that is a big change as well. 
Yeah, I think you're able to optimize your equipment to such a fine level with TrackMan, and then you're able to optimize your swing to launch at a perfect angle that you, you've got this. I mean, I think that's one of the underrated uh, things about what technology done is how the golf swings change. I mean, the philosophy of the golf swing is so much different now than it, than it was 15 years ago. Oh, yeah. Um, I think you see a lot of more bowed left wrists, I think. They let people come in with a shallower angle of attack and maybe kind of hit up and from the inside kind of hit that draw. I think Rory, I think, almost figured that out on his own. Obviously, he was pretty trapping when he did, but I think that's why you see a lot more bowed left wrists and really the cup. I think the cup left wrist is just a little fade. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you want to just kill the ball, uh, that's why you, I think you'll see a lot more bow left wrists at the top of swings than before. Yeah, and and the lower body. I mean, these guys use their lower body so much more, and I think that's part of having less big misses. You know, um, but yeah. it's it's really interesting. It's you watch these kids, and you're just it, I I think back, and I'm seeing some kids that are 16, 15 year olds that are playing in this Western Am, and I think about what my golf game was like when I was 15 and 16 using uh, Tommy Armour Silver Scots, and I'm like, well, this is a completely different game now. Yeah, I think Scott Foster had a great point on your podcast before of really, the really, really good players, they figured this stuff out on their own. Like, you see how, you know, guys figured out how to use their lower body before we knew about ground forces, and guys knew how to manage the course just because they had golf smarts. But now with data... Guys like Scott Fawcett and guys who are good with TrackMan, they can package that data and give it to anyone. So you don't, the advantage is almost gone that the kind of wise player had before. They figured it out on their own. Now we have so much data and so much intelligence, so much knowledge that everyone, if you use the right resources, can become an intelligent player. And so I think that's kind of interesting. And it kind of, it's hard because it takes away the advantage of the guys who really figured it out on their own because now everyone can kind of figure it out if you go to the right places. Yeah, it's track line is another big thing. The green reading books. Um, yeah, you, you saw kids out there. They'd have their, they'd be have their track line book out for eighteen inch putts, and they'd be layering track line with uh, aim point. I mean, it was crazy. I, I should have taken a video and you know sent it over to to Shackelford. He would have really loved to see this like this green reading book aim point and pretty much the the skill of gre- reading greens is gone yeah i think uh it's i don't know it, it is it's amazing it's kind of i don't know what you do i don't know where you gain an advantage if you're a, a smarter player i don't know what the next frontier really is because we've got you know faucet and those people have figured out course management and they can package and sell it to you green reading is gone uh strategy has been figured out through data um I don't know what the next step is for really the wise, wise golfer. Uh, in a sense, having that good golfing brain. I mean, that was one of Tiger's huge advantages was his golfing brain, obviously besides all the physical talent. And I mean, Jack Nicklaus as well. So I don't know, I don't know what's next. Honestly, I don't know where people differentiate themselves mentally. I guess maybe maybe it's about getting woke to width and uh, angles. It's all architecture. Yeah, I think you know that could be it. I mean, I think obviously there's such a big emphasis on hitting it far and, and bombing it. Uh, and, and for good reason, and Brody's data has backed that up. But I do think that people now start to ignore strategy. Um, 
because they just figure, well, everyone tells me to just go mash it as far as I can. So I think we could come back full circle where now guys who can strategize well uh, will have an advantage um, because people maybe are asleep at the wheel a little bit. I could see that. Mm-hmm. So uh, to get back, you know, we've now divulged into this technology and, and modern game talk, but to get back into the amateur golf scene, um, from your time covering college and am golf uh, extensively at Golf Week, what were a couple of your favorite amateur events? I always loved the USAM. That's an obvious answer, but I think for a different reason than it was the USAM, that just that it was the biggest. But it's always held on great golf courses, and I always loved you can walk down the middle of the fairway of a course, and so you can watch from the middle of the fairway a course being played properly, if you will, or at least played by by very skilled players. I thought that was really cool. And that was one of my favorite things about amateur golf and going to amateur events. Um, and I always recommend telling people to do it if they can. If you have amateurs in town or if you live in Chicago and they got the Western amateurs, that you can walk, you can walk in the fairway with a small crowd on a really great golf course and watch someone play it, you know, from a high skill level. And so I think that's the best part of amateur golf. But same thing with NCAAs. I think the match play format, um, I think it's great. Obviously, it's been accepted very well, but there honestly was so much drama when you were on site uh, that it was awesome. I think NCAAs, for that reason, I think the U.S. Amateur, just because the great venues and then obviously the stakes are so high, um, were some of my favorites. The Western's good, too. I think I like the 30 whole days. You can really, if you want to, you can walk a ton and see a ton, which was always obviously great. Yeah, it, it, this year's field over there was pretty insanely good too. Um, that's I, I really like um, amateur golf. I think it's it's a really cool way to get to see a lot of the future, you know, PGA Tour players. I people were talking last week at the Western Am how many PGA Tour winners are going to be in the, from the, from this field, and I think the general consensus was probably five. But I think that's something you sent me a text. Uh, couple maybe a, a week or a couple of weeks ago we were talking about sponsors exemptions and and, it, and it's just talking about how you know you see all these kids that are great college players great amateur players and and how you always expect them to make it but then you know a lot of them don't because it's just so hard to get to the pga tour level it's so hard and i think uh, i think one of the great skills is being able to play well when you need to and obviously there's some things that happen that you can't control. There's injuries or sometimes your game goes south just that, that summer that you're turning pro. But there's something, a skill of, like, guys are able to rise when they need to. And you've seen it with, you know, what Keith did and hurting his car without status and Rom did it. Um, and, you know, I think when you have such limited opportunities like you do when you first turn pro, I think you need to be able to play well in the widest variety of variables, if you will. So, you know, some guys they can thrive on, on amateur setups that might be a little bit, maybe just a little bit shorter than tour courses, though really a lot of the amateur and NCAA setups are more and more starting to mimic tour setups, which I think is why guys make the turn so quickly and kind of get on tour so quickly. But, you know, if you're not a good wind player or you're not, you know, good on a certain type of golf course or a certain type of weather, and you only have six or seven starts to make it and try to get your card or try to get to the web finals, like, you, you have to learn to handle those. You can't just, you know, have a bad tournament like college where, okay, my score gets thrown out, it's not a big deal. It's like, hey, you got to learn to figure it out and learn to be able to play well in these different conditions. And so I think the guys that really make it very quickly are the guys who 
can play well in the widest variety of conditions and courses and that kind of stuff because they only have six or seven shots to try to get their card. And so, you know, you have to just get it done even if the course doesn't fit you. I, yeah, I think one of the underrated things just about professional golf that people discount is the whole idea of going from this controlled college environment to out on your own, on the road, alone, no friends. Like when you're on the road with your college team, you've got your best friends, you've got your coach who's taking care of everything. And then all of a sudden you're just thrown into the deep end. Um, and, you know, whether you're up on the Canadian tour or you're down in Latin America or you're playing, you're doing Monday qualifying on the web, like that is a, a huge life change. And being able to handle that at 23, 24 years old, 22 years old is, is not easy. Yeah, I think I was listening to a podcast. Uh, David Axelrod had Theo Epstein on, the GM of the Cubs, and he said that they looked so much at uh, kind of players' makeup and how they handle pressure because so many guys that fit the hard transition is you go from being the big fish in the little pond, you know, you're the stars, the media's covering you, everyone's throwing equipment and attention at you because you're one of the best managers in the world, to now you're a little fish in a big pond. And some guys, I think, you know, now you go, no one really gives a rip about you. You're, you know, last tee time off of the day. You're, you know, no one cares. You're, and that's a big adjustment for some guys. I think some guys, their egos take a hit and they can't, they can't handle it. And I think too, kind of like what you talked about, there's so much more pressure. Like if you're at a college event, you know, you're 26 going in the last round. If you shoot 66, you know, you know, that might help, help the team. You finish 10, but you shoot 75, it's not as big a deal. Whereas now, like, every round really, really matters. And so if you're a new guy playing tour on a sponsor exemption and you're in 18th place uh, going into Sunday, like, that's a lot of pressure. Uh, and so every shot counts that much more. Every round counts that much more. Every round means something about getting, you know, your points for the web.com tour finals or getting your tour card that way. Or, I don't know, every shot just means so much more that you're playing under so much more pressure that I think uh, – guys struggle that. Yeah, you see that with the web.com so much too, is like one shot is the difference between 22nd and getting another start, say you don't have full status, and one shot then drops you to like 40th because they're so bunched together and there's so much talent down there. And the differentiation is a lot of times is just having your bad round be a 71 versus a 73 is the huge difference because... Oh. Almost every tournament, you're going to have one bad round. And it, it, the guys that can have their bad rounds, and I think this is what is so great about Spieth, is his bad, he plays horrible and shoots 69 somehow. Yeah, and that was Tiger's skill, too. And I think, I think when guys get out from college, they don't, I don't think they're used to feeling final round pressure when they start the final round at 33rd place or whatever. I think mm-hmm. that's kind of due to them. Whereas on the web, that's a huge thing because you've got to move up eight spots to get a start for the next week. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So, speaking of you know pressure and playing well at the right time, uh, the Walker Cup team selection is going to be made right after the USAM, and and this has got to be you know one of the years where there's more great players um, and more kind of unknown who's going to get these last spots for Spider Miller. I, I don't envy the position he's in because. There's probably about 20 guys that you could make a case deserve to be on this team. Yeah, and I think the other thing that gets thrown in the mix is, you know, if a total unknown wins the U.S. amateur, he's from the U.S., he takes the spot. 
as he should, but that mixes things up too. And it's interesting. This is the first year that they're going to name the whole team after the U.S. Amateur, um, which I'm sure some guys, you know, they have a good sense they'll be on the team, but you almost have to feel like that's a good way to go. Just because there's so much, like you said, it's so tightly packed that it's hard to maybe pick yourself, you know, have five or six guys picked by this time already like they usually would have. So, um, I don't know. I don't think that change was received the best by some people. I know I saw some articles against it because guys are just kind of in the dark all summer, and I get it. But at the same time, you kind of need some flexibility because of how tightly packed the race of soccer is. Yeah, and, you know, there's, there is this aspect of the Walker Cup where it's you have to be a USGA guy to get the spot. Um, they value – it's not all about merit of play, which it, it, you can say it's right or wrong, but – there is something about the USJ where you had, a, you know, perfect example is John Peterson. You know, the Walker Cup year wins the Jones Cup, which is one of the biggest amateur events and the NCAAs and doesn't get a spot because of his personality. Um, and, and was second in a web.com event. Yes. So, so you've got this kid that by, by playing Merritt was a, probably the best amateur player in the country and didn't get a spot. So that is an, a little bit interesting of a, and you probably see the same thing with the Ryder Cup and captain's picks, where you know they don't necessarily take the best guy, they take the right guy for the team. Um, and this year, so looking at it, you know, I think there are four clear locks, and maybe five, um, depending on how you break it down. I've got in there Stuart Hagestad, who's the you reigning U.S. Mid-Am champ, member at L.A. Country Club, and then also was a low-am at the Masters, qualified for the U.S. Uh, US Open, and uh, he'll be playing the USAM this week. But I, I think he's he's a guarantee because of that mid You know, they want to keep a mid-am spot, and he's been one of the more impressive players, um, regardless of age, in, uh, in amateur golf. Then you got Cameron Champ, who... People recognize that name from the U.S. Open, but he's also been on a tear. Uh, he won the Transmiss and uh, finished runner-up yeah. at the Pacific Coast Am. Uh, got to the semifinals of the Western Am last week. I think he's a lock. Uh, Mav McNeely, I think just for pedigree, he was longtime world number one uh, player. He's in there. He's made the he's made the cut in his last two starts on the PGA Tour. Uh, and then you've got uh, Braden Thornberry, who NCAA champ, uh, and then he also won the Jones Cup, and he won the Sunny Hana uh, the, a couple weeks ago. So, yeah, I mean, and then you've got the T4th at FedEx St. Jude. So that kid, he's got to be in there. Do you have anybody else that you would consider locks? I think uh, I was if by lock, I mean, I'd be shocked if they weren't picked. I think you've got to put Colin Morikawa in there. Um, it's maybe a name that people aren't quite as familiar with because he hasn't, you know, played a tour or he hasn't played a, a PGA Tour event. He hasn't, you know, really played a major. Um, and so I think that it's a name that people outside of the amateur and college are familiar with. But last year he loses the playoff to Ollie schneider Jans in a, uh, a Web.com Tour event. He wins the Sunny Hannah last year. He loses the playoffs to Braden Thornberry this year. And then he wins the Northeast, uh, which – is about as high as they get in amateur events up there in the upper echelon. Uh, first team All-American at Cal, 
uh, was second at the training submit. So I think Morikawa, I think he's got to be on there. I'd be completely shocked if he wasn't. Yeah, I, I was having a discussion with somebody in, uh, last week, and he might be the best amateur player in the game right now. Um, I think he's number one in the scratch players' rankings, which you know we can talk. We could probably talk for an hour about the different amateur rankings and what's the best one. But um, I think that one of the things that's most overlooked is that that kid, uh, what he did in the Web.com event last year. I mean that that is unbelievable. Yeah to lose in a playoff at, a, at the web.com level. And, I mean, he lost to a very, very good player in Ali Schneider, Jant. Yeah, and I think, I think it was a final round 64. Uh, it was a, a pretty impressive final round to get into the playoffs. So I think he uh, – I think you're right. I think that, you know, we often rate our amateurs by how well we know them based on what they've done in, you know, televised events, U.S. Open, NCAA champion, you know um, – Masters, that kind of stuff. But Morikawa hasn't done anything really there, per se. The web event was not on television, I don't believe. Um, and so I think that he's one of those guys who hardcore fans will know, but I think more people need to know about him. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, so that gets us to five players in get for sure, if we, if we put Morikawa in. And the Walker Cup, unlike the Ryder Cup, is only 10 spots. So... A little bit less. I mean, if it was 12, it, I feel like it would help out uh, Spider Miller so much because here's where it gets kind of crazy is you've got guys like uh, Sam Burns who just finished top 10 in a at the Barbasol and, you know, won five, I think, times in, in the NCAA season. You've got, um, and I think Sam Burns is turning pro after the Walker Cup. You've got Scotty yep. Scheffler, um, who is a former U.S. junior champion and then also was the low am at the U.S. Open. So that's a, that's a, Scheffler's a good example of a USGA guy, wouldn't you say? I think so. I think one of the things, or a couple of things always help with guys trying to make this team. The USGA, I think they always favor a lot their past champions. So Scotty Scheffler won the junior now years ago, but I think they like to have some of their past champions on, uh, on the team, and then also uh, being on other USGA teams, which there's not that many of them, but, you know, Scheffler and Brad Dalkey, along with Matt McNeely, uh, played in the World Amateur team last year, and I think that definitely helps your candidacy. Um, I think there are, as you kind of said, USGA guys, and I think a big part of that is winning USGA events and playing on USGA teams. I think it definitely helps both their candidacies. Yeah, and I mean, Scheffler is a guy that is, it's hard to ignore what he's done. I mean, he almost won the NCAAs. You know, you, you don't even, you don't always see the consistency out of him, but he always seems to be around in big events. You know, I, I think he made the cut in the other U.S. Open he played in, and, uh, you know, he's he's a big-time player. Yeah, I think low at the U.S. Open means a lot. So I think I he has got to be, I think he's got to be a lock, I think. I'd almost throw him into that category. I'd be shocked if he was not on that team. Mm-hmm. So, so that you know, if and, and Burns is, I I don't think you can really ignore Burns either. I mean, he was arguably the no. best player in college golf last year. Played um, in the U.S. Open at Oakmont. Uh, played very well at the Barbasol. I think finished sixth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's been a little bit more quiet on the amateur front, but his college play was so strong. And then I think finishing sixth, even if it is a a PJ Tour event that's played opposite the Open Championship. I still think. I mean, that can't be ignored. So, if you put those two guys on, you, you're you're up to seven spots, and then I know we're already filling up fast. 
It, it, exactly. But then you go down into this, it, you know, an interesting one is, is Dylan Meyer. Um, unbelievable college season. And then last year in the summer, he won the Western Am, made a deep run at the USAM. And you've got him sitting here, but he hasn't been, his form of late hasn't been that good since, you know, he, he had this um, this stomach is- issue and, you know, he had to be hospitalized during the college season. And since, he, you know, he hasn't been, you know, he hasn't gotten back to that form that we saw last summer or during the college season. What do you do with a guy like that? I think it's a tough one. It kind of reminds me of Scott Langley a little bit. Um, in 2000. And Langley finished 16th at the U.S. Open at Pebble, made the quarters of the USA in the Chambers, and played on that World Amateur team. Uh, I think Meyer was the first alternate for last year's World Amateur team. Langley, the next year, his, he lost the game uh, and started playing pretty poorly, and he didn't get picked for that, that walk-up team. And really, at the start of 2011, he was probably you know, top three uh, among favorites for that team. And I think, unfortunately, Dylan, it reminds me a little bit of that case, it's just, I think that, you know, last year's results can only carry you so much. And I think that he's going to have to do a lot at the U.S. Amateur uh, to get on that team. I think almost I'd say Nick Hardy, his teammate, has a better chance right now of getting on that Walker Cup team. Yep, Hardy's an interesting one, too. He's he's right on the on the bubble. Uh, he hasn't had any big wins, but if you look at all yep. the big events, you see him in the top five, top ten every single time. So the consistency's yep. there, and... I, th- I think he's a he's a guy that is a big team guy um, in terms of you know a, a guy you that people want on their team. Um, so I, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Hardy. That one kind of reminds me of Blaine Barber in 2011. Uh, Blaine didn't really have a big win; could really hang his hat on, but just very consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, and a guy who, again, a big team guy was popular with his teammates, and so. Uh, you know, we always rate these amateurs, I think, by their big win. What's their big win that we can define them as NCAA champion or U.S. amateur champion or whatever. And so I think guys who are consistent get overlooked because of that. But I think, you know, Hardy made the cut at Chambers Day and played pretty well. Um, made the cut at the John Deere over the summer and then had a good showing at the Western. And so I think uh, Hardy is kind of like that. He's, you know, not the big win, but very consistent and, uh, and just a strong, a strong player who I think gets overlooked a little bit. I, I really think Hardy's game translates well to the next level. Also, when I look at these guys and, and who who I see succeeding um, and making it to the PGA Tour, I think Hardy is a guy. He he's been he's such a good stroke play player, and in with the with the the PGA Tour Web Tour, I, I mean, there's only one non stroke play event. I, I think he's a guy that translates so well to the next level. Um, you know, the one thing he doesn't have the greatest match play record. Um, if you're, if you're looking at the smallest things to differentiate these guys. Um, another crazy thing is that Illinois, so I'm obviously a Chicago native, you know, we've had seven Walker cuppers ever from Illinois. And this year we could have two between Nick Hardy and then Doug Gim, who plays at Texas. Um, Doug he won the Pacific Coast Am, and he's a real steady player. He's in the he's number seven in the Wagger rankings, and then in the Scratch Players rankings, he's four. Uh, he he's a guy that you, you kind of almost put in this lock category. I think so. I mean, I think we're almost up to like seven or eight locks, and really, you know, again, if you throw in a random USAM chance, there's like one or two places for wiggle room, uh, which is funny because I think there's about six guys we'll be able to 
uh, mentioned pretty soon here who are going to be on that bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. I, don't, I don't know. It's going to be the finest hair. Uh, it's going to be kind of a separator for who gets those final couple spots. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you go down a little bit further and you see Sean Cracker, who um, he won the Porter Cup last year, was a star at UCLA, but you know, he, recently he, he got into contention on the European Tour. Uh, you've got Dawson Armstrong, uh, who is the 2015 Western Amp Champ. He, I think he kind of has an interesting case because he gets slighted by playing at Lipscomb. Uh, a smaller yeah. school, and he doesn't have necessarily the level of competition that can help him in these world rankings, but he, he ends up finishing really high. You've got Brad Dalkey, who's the you know star at Oklahoma. He had a really rough stretch, but seemingly is back to top form. Uh, Scott Harvey, another mid-am. I, I just, I, unless he makes like a very deep run at the USAM, I don't think he has a chance. Uh, Norman Zhang, who was the Western Am, who swept the medalist and the match play of the Western Am. Uh, Derek Bard, who made a deep run and former uh, US Am finalist. Uh, John Oda, Jimmy Stanger. Uh, who, do, who do you like of this group uh, getting a spot? I think a lot of it is going to come down to the US Am. Uh, you know, kind of like I remember back in 09, U-Line, a big part of what got him on the team was making the quarters. He had a bad college season to get to the quarters of Southern Hills and gets put on the team because of that, that USAM performance kind of put him over the top. And so I think so much is going to come down to USAM. And you're going to have matches uh, that kind of are between hopeful guys. Um, I think as a West Coast guy, I think Oda doesn't get enough credit. Oda Monday qualified for the Sony also this year. Uh, and I'm always intrigued. I think Sahit Tagala is a guy who has an interesting resume. I don't think He's done enough to get on the team, per se, but, you know, he could make a run at Riviera. Uh, I think Pepperdine does play there a little bit, and he shot 67 in the first round uh, Northern Trust this year. Uh, but I think Dalkey showed the, the squad or showed the selection committee what they needed to see, finished second in medal play at the Western AM. I think Norman Zhang deserves to be on the team, but he might have just come on too late. He's so young and so kind of new to the amateur scene. I mean, he was supposed to be in the second semester of his senior year of high school this past spring, but he came out early, uh, played at Oregon, was freshman of the year and half a year. Um, so I think skill-wise, I think Zhang deserves maybe more of a look than you know he might be getting because he's so new to the amateur scene, sort of. But um, I think Dalty, I think USGA guy, US amateur runner-up, plays a lot of Western, showed that his game might be back in the right direction. I think Dalty might have a slight lead on that group. Yeah, I, I think we you can't overlook Will Zalatoris either. Um, yeah. he's, he's a former USGA champion, uh, won the junior, and then also won last year's Transmiss. And in terms of, he's, uh, if, he, if he could putt, I, I, I was told by a, uh, a guy that's a potential Walker Cupper that Will Zalatoris might be one of the 10 best ball strikers in the world, period. Yeah, I mean, that's what the whole kind of Boston's whole decade thing kind of started with. He plays at the same club as Alex Morris, and he said, you hit it so good, if you just let me tell you where to hit it, you'll win, and Will did win. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've heard Will is, like, world-class ball striking-wise. He did the putter, unfortunately, that holds him back, and so I think that assessment definitely is true. 
I, I definitely think I, I agree with you on the John Oda thing. I think he might be the most overlooked and underrated guy uh, in, in all of amateur golf. He also qualified for the U.S. Open. Um, so, and, and, I mean, he was, he was nothing but, you know, consist, Mr. Consistent at UNLV. But he always seems to get overlooked probably because he's, you know, there's that West Coast bias. Uh, he's out in Hawaii. Um, so I, I, I think I, it, it'll be really interesting to see. And I, I agree that this, this U.S. AM is going to be a big definer of, you know, kind of who gets in. And, and, you know, I'll put together a little bit more color on this in an article. But it, it's, it's, it's a crazy situation for, for Spider Miller and who he's going to have to pick. Uh, from because it, you can you can make a case for all of these guys. Yeah, Oda was a first team All American. I mean, he was I mean, that's one of the top eight guys in college golf, basically. Um, I think you know Sahid won the Sahali Players. He qualified for the U.S. Open as well. Um, <laughs> I would love to see Dawson make it, just someone different, you know, a different kind of tool than our usual powerhouses. But uh, I think it's almost so tight this year that there really might not be any controversy because. There's just more guys in our spots, unfortunately. Uh, it's not very clear cut. I mean, we I think there's five to seven clear cut guys, but then there's like ten guys who are deserving of those last two or three spots. And and I think there's another little underlying factor is like guys like John Oda, um, John Oda and Sean Crocker. They these guys have delayed turning professional for this. I mean, they're both they're they're both planning to go pro after the Walker cup is like, does that weigh in that these guys have made a personal sacrifice to, you know, try and make this team? Yeah. I think, uh, I think that was the point Ryan Ladner made in an article when this whole, uh, announcement schedule was released, that they weren't going to announce the team until after the U S amateur that, you know, and it's hard. You don't want to, you can't just tell guys, Oh, you're on the team. Uh, cause they might, you know, who knows what might happen. They might get interested. might start playing bad, but, it is hard. I mean, these are people's livelihood, uh, in a sense. You know, this is a summer of uh, a summer of, of professional golf they could be playing. Uh, I don't know. It's it's not an enviable enviable position in a sense. Sam Burns is the same. I mean, Sam Burns put that note on Twitter that he was turning pro after the Walker Cup because he wanted to try to play to represent his country. Um, I think though, I don't. As tight as things are, I don't think you can give people you know, a nod in that direction just for that, that reason. Uh, but it is curious to see if they keep doing this, they don't announce the team until August if more guys start to turn pro, uh, you know, in June and, and don't try to make the team. We only had a couple each year to try to do it, but I think see, the Walker Cup has risen to such stature. So many guys were stars on tour now speak so highly of it from Jordan Spieth and Ricky Fowler and Justin Thomas. That I think it's such a goal that I think guys are willing to make that sacrifice. I'd also be interested to, from the economic sense of what happens to your sponsorship deal if you play in a Walker Cup. Um, you know, how, mu- how much is that worth in your initial deal? Is it a $100,000 honor or is it, you know, 50 or does it really not matter from an agent standpoint? Um, I think... I think, like we said, I think we rate amateurs so much by their accomplishments that we can kind of put on their resume and how good the resume looks, which I think sometimes we can can overrate guys who have pretty resumes uh, and we can underrate guys who don't have the big win but are very skilled players. I think kind of like we talked about with Nick Hardy. Uh, 
that it's all about the resume when you turn pro. So to put Walker Cup on there and to say that you did something that guys like George Spieth and Justin Thomas have done, I think it's worth a lot of money. I think I wouldn't be surprised if kind of that estimate that you gave is not that far off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I think it's got to be really big for sponsors exemptions too, and getting yeah. and getting those seven full starts and that full opportunity. Because I mean, they're a perfect example is a guy like Charlie Danielson, four time All American at Illinois, but you know, no huge win, no huge honor, and it, he's not he hasn't gotten you know as many sponsors exemptions as a guy like uh, Bo Hostler got, who was a you know. Haskins Award winner, uh, Hogan, uh, he didn't win the Hogan Award, but Haskins Award winner, um, you know, clear-cut Walker Cupper, you know, had all this success from a young age with the U.S. Open at age 17. So, I, it, I mean, this is a big deal, is getting onto this Walker Cup team. Definitely. And, I mean, it's the power of television. I mean, Bo Hostler, you know, most people, when they see Bo Hostler's name, they think U.S. Open Olympic Club. Um, and so that's what he's on television. So I think anything you can do that gets you on TV uh, helps so much uh, when you turn pro because sponsors want attention for the tournament. And so some amateur star who contended at a tour event that people got to know, um, it's such a big deal when I mean, you look for sponsor exemption than when you're making a name as an amateur. So with the success of, uh, with the, success of the NTAs, uh, do you foresee a world where and especially as television coverage gets easier with like that new technology. I, I was thinking about it at the Western Am, like eventually you're going to be able to televise stuff with drones and stuff like that. Do you, do you foresee, um, you know, more amateur golf being on TV? I think so. I don't know what the hangup has been to be honest, because like you said, you can, it's much cheaper to do it now. Um, I think part of it is, I think, with Golf Channel, there's so many tours that they televise that there's not that much room, especially during the summer. Um, it would be interesting. I don't know. You know, NCAA is so well rating-wise because there's so much on the line. I don't know how well your run-of-the-mill college event would do. I don't know how well your, you know, even Southern Highlands is such a great event, but there's not that passion. You're not playing for the national championships. So I don't know that, College golf outside of the NCAAs would do very well rating wise. Um, I do wonder, you know, if you could maybe somehow do it online and do it through, you know, the way we do like PJ Tour Live, that kind of stuff. Um, it's just hard, I think, when you're, you know, the US Amateur and the NCAAs are good viewing because, again, there's just so much on the line that you might not have at your other um, amateur events. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, the Western Am would be a cool one to eventually get on television. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with that. It's, it's tough and it's such a small niche audience. It, I mean, there's a lot of passionate fans and a lot of people that care, but at the end of the day, it, it, it's not, but it, I mean, likewise, you go back to it and it's, you, you start to know who these future stars of, of the tour are. Totally. I, mean, um, I think it's all, when a guy turns pro, it's all about whether or not he's on TV. I think as far as it's the general fan knows him. I mean, same with Beast, uh, when he turned pro, I mean, obviously he was, very good that people knew him from the Byron Nelson season intended in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Hey, uh, you want to get out of here on some overrated underrated? Uh, I don't think I can leave without doing it. I, I yeah, I mean it's. Uh, I guess it. I got some good ones for you. Let's go with uh, right. the, the Western Am. Uh, I'm gonna say underrated only because I think 
I mean, it's pretty much the prop amateur-wise, and I think most amateur golf is underrated. So I got to go underrated. Yeah, it's it's the best field. I I like it. it is. I think it's the masters of amateur golf. So yeah, it, I'm glad the U.S. Amateur. I'm glad that they put in the top 50 world ranking exemption. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but still, so much of that field is qualifiers that you you get some names who miss out because they didn't qualify. Think of an NCAA Lazy, and I think NCAA needs to go to its own stroke play individual championship because you have guys who don't get to go because their team, you know, you get the number five guys from some random school who his team made it through, so he plays in the NCAA championship, but then the number one player from a smaller school uh, doesn't make the regional team out there. Per- perfect example is Colin Morikawa didn't make it yeah. to the NCAAs this year, and that's that's the number yeah. one player in the world, and th- that's a huge problem for the NCAAs. I-, I completely agree. I think they need to s- create a separate individual championship where you take, say, the top 100 players from the Sagarin ranking, and then you have uh, a couple individual qualifiers, and then you need to have you know the 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 team championship and maybe it's it's doing it opposite the women's so when the women's are are doing their team championship it's the men's individual when the men's team championship's happening it's the women's individual totally um so i i agree with that um let's do uh riviera overrated underrated oh um man that one i feel like it's very well rated but i just can't give it uh <sighs> You can't cop that. Out. I'm gonna go. I know that's a cop out. I can't do it. Um, I'm gonna go underrated. I think uh, most things on the West Coast are, and I just, I thought West Coast bias or East Coast bias was a total you know excuse until I lived on the East Coast, and then I realized sporting events start so late here, everything else that really East Coast bias is definitely a thing. So almost everything on the West Coast is underrated. Yeah, I think I think it. it... I, I look at Riviera and I see how it could be so much better. Um, I don't think they did, they got the best renovation done by Tom Fazio. And if you got, if you got that thing, um, you know, a little bit more width in the fairways and, and brought back, I mean, like the 10th hole kind of got changed. Uh, it's obviously the most icon, one of the most iconic holes in golf, but I think it could be even better if they fixed the green. Um, so, uh, next one. This is, I got to go back to the 10th hole real quick. This is an unpopular take on the 10th hole, but I think they've got to shave down so much of that rough on the left side. Because if you look, the ideal angle where you're shooting right up the green uh, to have the whole green to work with is in the left rough, basically. And I feel like that needs to be fairway to allow you to try to play the proper angle where you're hitting up the green. You know what I love about that, too, is it's such a – that strategy and, and is, like, counterintuitive. And that's what makes golf so great is like that strategy is hitting it 40 yards left of the green when all you want to do, like everything about golf is hitting it at a target and having your target shift to 40 yards left is such a, it's such a cool little unique quirk. I love holes where, you know, you look at it and it, you know, you've got this wide fairway, say it's 80 yard wide fairway. But the the depending on the pin, the strategy is to hit it down the very right edge of the fairway or the very left edge of the fairway. Where you know, yeah, that, one of the- I mean, that's what we were talking about with strategy and and kind of how that could be the next smart thing. One of the cool things of Spieth's strategy from Royal Birthdale that he kind of talked about at the Bridgestone was that the, the rough, as most people know, is pretty low at Birthdale. It's pretty playable, 
And obviously the pop bunkers are pretty penal. It's basically a one-stroke penalty. So uh, he was talking about the tee shot on 13 where he blew it way right, and I once said it was 100 yards from the center of the fairway. And he's like, yeah, but it was like 30 yards from right of my target. Because his target was the right rough, uh, mm-hmm. because the rough is very playable. It gave you a good angle from over there. Um, and the pop bunker to the, the left side of the fairway was so penal that he was blasting it into uh, basically the light rough on the, on the right side. It's it's interesting because you you look at his driving stats from the week and he hit so few fairways, but then so many greens, and it it it, it, it it's all angles. It's so. I mean, he his his fairway on a lot of holes was the rough because the rough was so playable and pop bunkers are so penal that he just said, "All right, let's just hit it in the rough because the penalty for the rough is basically non-existent." That's why it was definitely very deceptive when he, if you looked at his driving stats, you would have thought he drove it horribly. When in reality, it was really just great strategy. It's it's interesting. I mean, that's that is such a Tiger thing to do, where Tiger knew everywhere to miss, and just you know, a lot of times was aiming down rough lines just because he knew from there he was you know, it, and it's it's similar to Jordan, where Jordan's his approach shots have become such a weapon. You know, Tiger was so good with his irons that, and he was so strong out of the rough that it didn't really matter. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's getting talked about more, but I mean, Jordan's literally number one on tour in strokes gained approach to green. Uh, and we saw him make all those big putts at the end of the open, but his putting is not where it was a couple of years ago. And so it's almost like if you combine the way he's hitting it this year with his best putting, uh, I mean, it could be, you know, you don't want to make predictions. Golf's hard, and it's kind of like whack a mole where one thing gets good and then another part of your game struggles. But if he can combine those somehow, I mean, it's a really strong play that he could start producing. Yeah, he has already. It's uh, he, he's a uh, he's a transcendent talent. I mean, yeah, it's he he does it in a completely different way than Tiger does it, and it's not as glamorous or pretty. And sure, watching Rory hit three hundred and fifty yard bombs off the tee is is really entertaining. But and Jordan's never going to be somebody that's like, wow, that was a really pretty sixty five. But you know, it's pretty in its own way. Yeah, I think I was talking. Maybe it was Tron, but I think we underrate Spieth as a ball striker because of his reactions after the shot. Like you know, he's talking to it, and he doesn't. You know, he's he's yelling at his ball and that kind of stuff. But you know, on TV, you don't see the ball flight. You see the player swing, the follow through, the reaction, and you see it land. And so when you're when you're basing it based on all their reactions, then you think Spieth's hitting it bad. In reality, it's just he has very high expectations for himself and his, the end result we're ending up is actually very good. So I think that's one reason why, and also because it's not as elegant as Rory that we underrate him as a ball striker. I, I also, it's interesting because I think that that's an example of where Spieth's flaws with his driver, where he doesn't have this, I think, you know, Rory doesn't ever look at a hole and think, I, I can't hit this shot with a driver, where Spieth looks at a hole and says, wow, I can't miss that left. And so he aims in the right rough. And, and it's where a flaw turns into a strength. Mm-hmm. Where yeah, Rory, I mean, definitely. Yeah, where Rory might end up in that left bunker because he, he has un, a supreme confidence in his driver. What is it? I think it's like a McKenzie line about how you keep, uh, you keep egging people into basically taking on more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of get, finally they get bitten, and so they kind of back off, and then they keep taking on more and more and more until they get bit again. It's kind of like that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The psychology of design is is a underrated uh, uh, aspect of architecture, I think. 
Um, yeah. Next topic, Quail Hollow. Cool. Uh, I'm going to go overrated. I think that early returns, especially from the players, is that I don't think they're hugely in favor of uh, what was done here. Um, and I think, you know, you had a golf course, obviously you gave us some low scores, um, but you had a golf course that I think people liked. It was, uh, and now it's just hard. Whereas it had some character before, and yeah, it was very scorable, but it had a lot of character, and now it's just it's just hard. Um, and so I, I think I think that the early returns from players are that it's not, they don't love it as much as they love the free renovation. And I think just, again, because I mean, you have three par fours over 500 yards. It's just hard now. Yeah, I was talking to Pauly, uh, my picks guy, last night, and he uh, he brought up a great point is the guys that start on the back nine and have to do the green mile to end, and then it, it rolls right in one through four, which is now really very, very difficult. Like, that six and seven hole stretch there is all of a sudden, you know, and six or seven, like, extremely difficult holes in a row is so hard to play yeah. as a player. I mean, yeah. you you need almost a break at some point. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see if we see any discrepancy in the guys that have to tee off on the back nine uh, first, or, you know, it, it just when, like, scoring average just from the psychology of it, of back nine starts versus front nine starts. Obviously, everybody gets one of each, but it'll be interesting to see if you can pull any statistical differences in that. That's true. That's a really good point from Pauly. I have a friend who's deep in Pauly. He thinks he's a genius. Uh, but those that's a brutal seven-hole stretch uh, to have to play them consecutively. Yeah, Pauly is... Uh... Polly's very, very smart. He's a really good player, which I think helps when you're extremely good with numbers and a good, good golfer. I, I think he pulls a little bit more than a lot of uh, a lot of other guys uh, do. Um, yeah. So last one, the career Grand Slam, underrated, overrated. Ooh, I'm gonna go underrated. Uh, I think it's so hard. I mean. Not only have to do it; it's four different types of of, of tournaments. Obviously, um, the U.S. Open, you know, it has different identities, but usually it's a U.S. Open and thick, rough, narrow fairways, that kind of stuff. But it's winning on so many different types of tournaments, uh, and there's only four majors a year. And I think really, once you get to that, once you've got three legs, I think it's so hard. I think Rory's already starting to feel it. Um, every time he goes to Augusta. And Augusta's difference, you have to wait eight months. But every time he goes to Augusta, it's all that pressure on him. And, you know, I think uh, I saw somewhere that all the guys who completed it, they completed it within, like, three tries. Mm-hmm. Um, and you look at, like, Tom Watson and Arnold Palmer, uh, for the two of them, the PGA that, that kept them from doing it. I mean, so you have great players who have won three legs. Uh, winning all four, I think, is really hard. Because once you once you have three of them down, it's, it gets so... Uh, the pressure gets so high. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's interesting. It's an amazing stat. I, I had a, <clears throat> I had a sports psychologist on, and he talked about how a lot of times great play comes from low expectations, and when you don't, you know, it, the idea of trying to treat every tournament the same, and it almost becomes impossible when you're going for the career Grand Slam. Yeah, and I, uh, 
I think, too, another good point is really the Grand Slam didn't become a thing until really Arnold Palmer, kind of 1960s. He won the Masters in the U.S. Open, uh, and then we going over to St. Andrews. And that's really when the Grand Slam hype kind of started. You had Bobby Jones' version, but the, the four professional majors. And so, you know, you look at Sarazen and Hogan, um, the Grand Slam wasn't really much of a thing when they did it. Hogan, I mean, he did it after the bus crash. That makes it amazing himself. But really, so you only had three guys, I think, uh, you know, Player, Nicholas, uh, and Tiger, who did it after the Grand Slam really became a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I mean, three guys in the last... 50 something years. So it shows how hard it is. You know, I saw, I forgot who tweeted it last night. Somebody tweeted that the Tiger Slam is is being diminished. Oh, is Brian uh, Atkinson. The Tiger Slam is being diminished because of the PGA move. Well, you know what's crazy? Uh, and I'm not trying to sell the players as a fifth major, but in the midst of the Tiger Slam, Tiger also won the players. So he won the five biggest titles uh, that you can win in golf. Uh, in a row, because back then the players was in March, so mm-hmm. he won the players before he won the Masters to cap off the Tiger Slam, uh, and so I think that makes it even that much more nuts. Yeah, I, I, it's uh, it's it's crazy. It's a, I mean that is actually something that's never been talked about. But it, I mean, because the Sawgrass was like arguably one of the worst setups for Tiger. Yeah, it's uh, it's you know, it's you, distance is not an advantage. It's, Placing your ball, it's strategy. It's you know a lot of discipline to hit lesser clubs off the tee. Um, you don't overpower that golf course. And you kind of massage your way around it. Yeah, and not getting over aggressive on approach shots either. So I hey I, you yeah. know I can't leave you without asking. I, I, I we're running long here, but what about uh, what about Hideki? Overrated, underrated? No, just just Hideki. What what is he? It, is he the most underrated? Him in the Japanese media, the most underrated uh, story in sports or in golf? Uh, at least in golf. I mean, Hideki is number three in the world in leading the FedEx Cup, and he doesn't even come into the media center of the PGA for a pre-round interview. Oh. Uh, now, granted, obviously a lot of that's the language barrier, but still, I mean, at least I credit Augusta. Augusta brings him in, and I think actually, I think he did a pretty good interview at Augusta. Uh, I remember I asked him, I'm like, are you ever happy with your ball striking? And he basically said no. Because uh, he's talking about how bad he was hitting, and of course he finished like 11th that week. Yeah. Um, top 15 in all three majors. The 61 was the best final round from a strokes gain perspective uh, this year. Um, I mean, three wins this year. I think hardcore underrated. Probably the most of all the things we talked about today. Most underrated of all of them. Um, and I get it. The language barrier makes it hard to cover, and it makes it hard for fans to get to know him. But I mean pretty crazy what he what uh what he did last week and and what he's done in the majors and i think uh it's you know he's about ready to conquer the world yeah i i think it, it, if he wins that it, he's also a big aspect of growing the game abroad i i hate the term oh. growing the game but he is a he, i think he needs to win a major um and you'll see it, but it's uh has the question how many times has the question been asked can hideki win I think two WGCs, uh, and I think both of them were by five shots. I think that's worth one major. So I think he can win a major. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say affirmative yes. Sixty-one final round, and then he says he didn't. He didn't trust his swing. Is just out of control. Well, Dottie Pepper said that his final round, like his warm-up for the final round, was atrocious. Uh, 
which I think it often is. I think he's like a lot of players, though. I think that once you know, once the gun sounds, he gets ready to go, and he's a gamer. Uh, I think, I think, I think he's very talented in the sense that I don't think he swings how he wants to very often, but he just saves shots uh, through impact, and just you know, it feels weird through impact. And that's why he one hands it, and he doesn't like it, whatever. But then it ends up okay. I think he's got that innate kind of club face awareness that Phil has talked about that he can just save shots and end up with good shots even on swings that he's not happy with well I mean there's the old adage that like the best player is the player who misses the best because like Hogan used to say yep. he'll only hit four perfect shots per round yeah and it, it it's like Hideki gets penalized because he outwardly reacts to his poor shots and it and it bugs it's like people beef. yeah but yeah, yeah. exactly it, and, and it's just like well like He's just being honest because, like, the reality is he only probably – you only probably hit five or six perfect shots in a round of golf. Yeah. So it's uh, – it, 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 he just misses really well. So, I mean, that that's a big thing. And it's always just – if he putts really well, he's going to win. Totally. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what – he went on that tear. What was it, like seven events this fall, I think, that he finished first or second in all of them? I think, like, five wins in two seconds or something. And it was because he was putting well. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got to learn how to get back to that. I'm not sure if he will, but uh, but so hey, also put, he's going to need to matter. carry that international team on his back. Yeah, Presidents Cup. No, I think it's, were we talking about this? I think uh, putting. I think yeah, everyone hits it great, as you said. Putting is a differentiator, so you have to hit the ball at a certain level to make it to the PGA Tour and to yeah. be elite on the PGA Tour. But then you need to putt well to separate yourself. Yeah, like, you're not going to be top ten in the world hitting it bad. That's, uh, see, this is my, my point is that is it, everybody likes to look at a singular event in terms of like, oh, look, Jason Duffner just won with negative strokes gained putting. Like, if putting doesn't matter, you know, they do this. But if you look at careers as a whole, show me one person that you feel like has overachieved that was a really bad putter. Right. Everybody, you say, oh, like that guy, why doesn't that guy win more? And if you, almost every time you look at that player and you say, well, it's because they don't putt well. I think great ball strikers, I mean, are going to be more consistent because they're going to give themselves more birdie opportunities. I mean, there's a lot more birdie pins for Rory than any other player out there. And so the weeks that he does putt well, he's going to win by a ton. And the weeks he putts badly, he finishes 10th. Mm-hmm. But that's because, I mean, he just has so many more birdie opportunities than everyone else. And so I think that's the, the biggest thing. A hot putter, they can win every once in a while. But week-to-week consistency and especially greatness where you win a bunch, I mean, that's built on very strong ball striking. I mean, like Aaron Badley's won five times. Yeah. He's won more times than uh, than Gary Woodland. True. But I think, yeah. Well, and you have to have a complete game, obviously. But I think great great players, five-plus majors, uh, I would be hard-pressed to find a non-world-class ball striker in the group of guys who won five or more majors. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's it's ball striking gets you to uh, into contention, and putting wins you the tournaments. Yeah, I think Jake Nichols tweeted something like, would you rather have Rory driving or Spieth putting? And he said, like, what, how you answer will determine or will show how much you know about the game. Um, because really, for most people, they could probably benefit most from Rory's driving. I think. Uh, yeah, I think. I mean, if you if you put people where Rory hits his drives, like you're 
what it is is your ceiling is so uh high or your your floor yeah. your floor is so low or floor is so yeah. high and your ce- like your floor is so high like you can't really play bad from 130 yards out in the middle of the fairway right actually i think sean foley put it best uh i use this one a lot he said like all right let's take my dad and hunter mayhan or any player justin rose and let's do a chipping contest drop five balls you know my dad might win every once in a while and might chip three of them closer than justin rose does but if we do closer to the pin from 200 yards like my dad's not even come within 50 yards of justin rose and just showing that the biggest separation between players happens at the greatest distances. Yeah, 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 I agree. It's, it's, it, yeah, it's every, every level, I think, like, every level, the biggest difference when you move up is, is play from like 150 yards to 50 yards is the biggest, actually, like 150 and in really is when you look at the difference between a really good amateur and a great amateur or a great amateur and a great pro is I, I think you hear it so much with these guys when they turn pro is what do you have to improve? Oh, it's my wedge play. Like I got out here and realized like these guys are so good with wedges. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I don't want to take up more of your time. Now we're at like a, almost an hour and 20, but it was uh it's always good catching up. Always good conversation. Uh, be sure to follow, uh, Sean on Twitter, it's what at S Martin PGA Tour. Uh, P- PGA Tour S Martin. PGA Tour S Martin. Uh, you got any? I feel like we should give a prize to whoever uh, whoever, whoever fa- makes it to the end of the podcast. You know, there's a lot of people that get to the end of this. You, they they got to hear the overrated, underrated. That's true. This one's very long, though. I'm looking at my phone right now. Yeah, it's all right. You, you know, if, if people don't want to listen, they'll just stop listening. So. Um, uh, one and a half, one and a half speed is the key on podcast too. Yeah, I, I, have never gone into the one and a half speed. You, you, you rave uh, about yeah, it. It'll change your life. All yeah, right, it'll change your life. Tip, you got any articles uh, coming out this week? What, are, what are you writing about? Uh, I wrote one. I talked to Brian Harmon actually at a, uh, Akron, and it was actually a really good interview. I thought, um, you know, Brian Harmon, Brian Harmon was like the team phenom before we had social media. Like he made a tour yeah. cut at 17. He was the number one amateur in the world before he started college. Uh, youngest guy to play in the Walker cup. And he's 30 now, obviously he has two tour wins run up the U S open. And kind of talked about how, you know, there's always that, Oh, he's a little guy chip on his shoulder. And, you know, which there's truth to that. And he always plays well after he gets motivated, but talk about, he's like, man, I turned 30 this year. And I was basically like, not that the end is near, but like, I gotta start, you know. I gotta start doing what I thought I would always do, and it was just interesting hearing a guy who once was this phenom, the kind of guys we rave about now uh, when we talk about walking up and such, who hasn't done what he thought he could, and kind of how realizing his own maybe mortality and golf mortality has really kind of inspired the best play of the season. I don't. I thought it was very honest and open uh, for a tour yeah. player, and I'm writing Rory today, but everyone's writing Rory today. So hey, um, I'll uh, I'll get some good. I'll put the I'll put the Brian Harmon link in the in the pod description um, on the site. Perfect. So, but that's I mean I I I was the same age as Brian Harmon, and he was like he was the he was unbelievable as a junior. He won oh, everything. Yeah. He was the clear cut best player in the world at like age seventeen as an amateur. He was talking about if he if there had been Twitter when he was in high school, he probably would have turned pro out of high school because he would have been blown up so much on social media that uh, might as well. Yeah, it's crazy. He was uh, he was so good. 
So, all right. Well, uh, Sean, thanks, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks, man. All right. Later. Later.